and welcome to a special episode of Cardonomics Cast. Today we have a recording of our 2021 event, a debate on what will shape our economy next year. The event was hosted by third-year economics student Rayhan Jaker. The panel consisted of economists Professor Patrick Minford, Professor Hugh Dixon, Dr Joshi Eshaw and Dr Lena Shevlova. We hope you enjoy this debate. So our first topic for the event is the impact of Brexit and COVID on trade and services in the UK. Uh, Lena will be discussing her views on this. Lena, you have five minutes to do this, starting now. Well, thank you so much for inviting me here. Well, I'd like to kick off this discussion with a few words about trade and services and the aftermath of Brexit and COVID-19. So if any of you would have turned on the television, you must have heard a lot of been a lot of discussion about what's going to happen with the trade in goods after Brexit. But there is very little said about trade in services. And that is despite the fact that actually UK is the net exporter of services and the service sector accounts for whooping 80% of UK GDP and 85% of UK employment. So in 2019, UK sold almost 200 billion worth of services. And that's excluding travel, transport, and banking services. So these are just some facts about um, um, the service industry in the UK. The key exporting industries are financial, legal, consulting, and research. And a single biggest importer of UK services is the United States, which imports 20% of UK services, which is followed by France, Germany, Netherlands. And exports of the of services to non-EU countries um, and non-US countries account for 36% of US um, of our UK exports of services. So clearly services are a really big part of the UK economy. And I think they're going to come to the forefront in 2021. So some of the questions that will be asked in this area, I think will be, how will the deal or no deal Brexit impact trade between the UK and the United States, um, rest of the world, and of course, Europe itself. I think something to think about here is whether EU could actually make importing UK services more difficult for its member states. Clearly, we have seen some movement um, towards um, that sort of stance when EU tried to recall Euro to, 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 to recall clearing of Euro-denominated derivatives to the continent. Um, and this is important because so the, the reason why services in the UK are so productive is because there are huge economies of scale and also this industry is able to attract talent like no other industry in the UK. So these are the key determinants of its productivity. And we just have to wonder how the loss of scale will make UK services less productive and make it harder to attract talent and how we can actually counter that. So will the US and non-EU importers still find the UK um, to offer the lowest, the lowest cost quality adjusted services? The answer to this depends on the importance of the economies of scale 
that and the, how important are they in determining the productivity of the financial services. Um, another thing that I think um, is going to become important, maybe not so much in the next year, but sometime further down the line, is that we have seen that COVID-19 actually expanded the range of services that can be traded. So you can see some anecdotal evidence that in the IT sector, firms actually offshore coding, coding gigs to India, China, and other countries. So could this become more prevalent? Um, could COVID-19 actually start an era where we see offshoring of production of intermediate services? So, you have one. okay, awesome. So could we see that and how would Britain actually cope with that? Maybe Britain will become actually the offshoring hub for services. For one thing, remote working could actually keep the back office jobs in the UK, even if there is no case, um, no some kind of deal, no deal for Brexit. Pound depreciation can make services more competitive on global stage. And usually offshoring recipients often benefit in terms of employment and wage growth. And I think the last point that I think is worth talking about is what is going to happen if we actually go to WTO trading terms in terms of service sector. Um, many of you may not remember, but during the decade between 1997 to 2007, there was a decline in WTO tariffs. And that actually led UK manufacturing firms to diversify their operations and start producing services. So if now we go on to trade with EU on WTO terms, maybe it will cause a transition back to manufacturing. So I think I, I must be bang on five minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so now the uh, discussion is open for the other panelists to um, step in and offer their views on uh, this topic. Um, Professor Hudex, and what's your thoughts yeah. on this? No, sure. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I agree that, that the, the, um, the, the trade in services is, 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 is quite sensitive to, to the exact nature of the, the Brexit deal. And the, what, the example I like to, 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 to look at is, is culture, films, uh, media. Uh, the EU has uh, European content rules on, on TV and, and film, uh, and a certain proportion of it has to be European. I can't remember the exact percentage, uh, but it, it's certainly there. And currently, uh, we're covered by that. We're, we, we count as being European, uh, and so we're, we're within that, uh, that envelope. But uh, if, uh, if we don't get a, some sort of deal on this, uh, we'll be counted as foreign, uh, and uh, that, that will greatly affect a lot of our uh, media uh, industries. Um, now, what will the effect of that be? It could just be uh, some relocation. We could relocate uh, some of our media uh, industries uh, onto the continent, um, or it, uh, you know, it, it could have other effects. So, um, yeah, I think you know, if you look at each industry, people obviously focus on agriculture uh, and cars, which are at the manufacturing end of things, or financial services. But you know, I think uh, for each type of service. Uh, you'll find uh, as part of the single market and trading, there are certain uh, rules which will be affected 
by, uh, by, by, by Brexit and uh, there'll be particular uh, effects. So it, it's very difficult to make a, a wide generalization, I think, because a lot of the rules are, are industry specific. Thank you. Um, any any thoughts, um, Dr. Joshi Iso? Yeah, uh, thanks, Ray. Uh, uh, Lena, once again, thank you for that really interesting talk. I, uh, you know, lots of interesting facts which I never even realized. I, I really just have a, a point, and maybe you can clarify. I mean, you you said that if if we did go to WTO rules, uh, the, the 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 chances are there will be some restructuring of the economy from services to manufacturing. Well. Uh, is that, I mean, I, is there any obvious uh, evidence for that or, or indeed is that problematic? Uh, well, I, I don't really think it's a problematic thing uh, in particular. I, I guess my point was that we usually think about services as services and manufacturing as manufacturing as two completely distinct sectors. But actually, if you look at research closer, it turns out that firms actually co-produce services and manufacturing. And, you know, they actually adjusted in, you know, in response to import competition. So how that, so it's, it's not necessarily that, you know, some firms are going to exit, potentially they can respond to it by just changing the share of their output from, you know, services to manufacturing. And that's what happened, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's really interesting because one of the big uh, arguments against uh, a no deal is is they talk about the car uh, sector and so on and so forth because you know it'll be easier for them to 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 find the the uh, uh, supply chains and all of those things in in Europe and having one so this is this is this is quite a quite an interesting uh, if not curious way of looking at it but uh, but yeah thanks um, that's that's interesting. Um, as, as I said before, anyone, has, all the panelists can just step in whenever they wish. Um, Professor Patrick Minford, if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, I think what, what Lena said is pretty interesting. And on the whole, I completely agree with it. I mean, I think the point is that we, there, won't, there won't, of course, be any WTO tariffs or interferences with services, even if there's no deal. So basically, the, the UK service industry is pretty competitive internationally. The city is one of the world's leading financial centers. So I don't think that's going to be much affected by whether the EU tries to put on some, some barriers or not. Though actually, I have to say that I think there will be a deal. And I think the EU would be crazy not to have a, have a deal. So I'm not really terribly exercised about the no deal aspect, I think there will be a deal. So I think the city and the financial services sector is very important also in a US trade deal, which, which will, I think, be quite uh, uh, quickly prosecuted by the government uh, as soon as they, they've got the EU negotiations out of the way. So I'm pretty optimistic about the service sector. And I'm also pretty optimistic about the economy generally, because I think free trade and um, uh, free trade agreements around the world are going to be pretty good for the British economy. I'll kind of come back to that when I when I make my remarks. So basically, I'm I'm quite on side with what Lena said. Pretty positive response for you, uh, Dr. Shavaliva. <laughs> Any 
any other remarks you'd like to make about your uh, topic? Um, no, no, I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to predict what's going to happen. I was just trying to raise the questions to, you know, think about and yeah, I, hopefully it works out the best way possible. <laughs> And I'm sure it will, because, you know, economy is going to adjust one way or another to, 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 to kind of, um, so to say, Pareto optimal outcome. But uh, having to, uh, just to, I don't want to uh, end the party too much here, but, you know, the, both the OBR and the National Institute and most other places do, do say that uh, the short-run disruption of a, of a hard Brexit or, or no-deal Brexit will be quite significant, and uh, they say it's 3% of GDP. Um, which, uh, so yes, I mean, this sort of restructuring you're talking about, Lena, is sort of medium term to long term, isn't it? It's not going to happen in a few months. No, uh, so it's no going to take time. And I think, I think that, that that's the problem, really. Yes, the UK economy can adjust, but uh, it's going to take quite a long time. And uh, for next year, uh, it's going to be quite tough, I think, for firms that have been uh, exporting services to the to the to the uh, continent. If they if they suddenly find it's more difficult, if there's more, if if Patrick's wrong and a, the deal doesn't come along and they've got more regulations, uh, and they uh, and as I say, it, it, for media and culture, it might have quite a big effect. Uh, you know, uh, for our companies to sell their sell their wares uh, on the continent uh, if, if if there's not a special deal sorted out a bilateral on this topic. Yeah, well, that's true. And even if there is a short-term short-term disruption, short-term disruptions usually tend to have, you know, persistent labor market outcome effects mm -hmm. and all those sort of bad things. Yes, certainly. Um, we have this statement from uh, Wun Wong in the chat. Last week's strength of sterling pound is optimistic of a deal. Yes, I, I noticed that. Yes, there was some, some wags on Twitter were saying that maybe there was some wire. Somebody had a wire in the room because was it a couple of days ago that it, the pound went up uh, and, and some Tory MPs were saying they thought there might, be, there might be a deal. So yes, there may be some inside information. Maybe Patrick's got it too. He's being very inscrutable there. But... <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I think the probability of a deal has obviously <clears throat> increased simply because both, both parties had the chance to have no deal last Sunday and they didn't take it. So, you know, uh, the chances are that they both kind of thought, well, actually, we want a deal, which makes sense. I mean, economically, there should be a deal because um, I don't think there'll be much disruption, frankly, but I think that the EU will suffer very badly from the loss of one-fifth of its markets. Uh, you know, the, people forget the UK is one of the biggest consuming entities in the EU. It's one-fifth of the whole EU market, so pretty significant, really. Um, and I think, I think, actually, the effects on the UK have been quite over, overdone because one of the things about being small is that in, in, in trade, there's kind of a proposition that the importance of being unimportant, you know, because there's lots of, lots of places you can sell and you're, not a, you're a pretty small fish in a very large pond. So I think the big problem is for the EU because suddenly replacing one-fifth of its markets in the UK is a pretty, pretty tall order. And there's panic, of course, in Ireland and there's quite a lot of panic in Belgium. 
and a fair amount of panic in France too, and Germany with the car industry. So I think there are lots of reasons why there'll be a deal. Well, let, let's hope you're right. <laughs> let's hope you're yeah. right. Um, we'll be moving on to topic two now, which is uh, inequality and UK foreign aid policy in the COVID era, which will be introduced by uh, Joshi. Thank you, Rihad. Thanks very much for, I, I like to think of this as, as a roundtable discussion rather than debate. It reminds me too much of Oxford Union if you talk about debate. So, so let's think about it as roundtable. And like, uh, like Lena, I, 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 must, I must admit, I mean, uh, we're not really predictors. Economists are really glorified soothsayers. So they like to say things like beware the Ides of March and that sort of thing. So, you know, nothing, nothing more than that. Uh, as Rian said, I'm going to talk about a couple of uh, two topics. One of one is inequality or the popular parlance leveling up. And secondly, about UK's foreign aid budget. Again, uh, both uh, topical. So it's, it's, it's been a year since our glorious leader, uh, Boris, came sweeping into power. And of course, uh, what was the first thing Boris said in, in his major speech? Well, you know, it's he wants to deal with uh, inequality, specifically regional inequality. Uh, and he coined the phrase leveling up. And, and a lot of this has, has to do with uh, when, when Nina uh, piqued my interest about industries and so on, because you're talking about really a post-industrial Britain in many ways. Uh, it appeared to be ushering in um, a post-austerity era. So what, what has been the impact of uh, COVID? Um, just to, just to uh, look at a, a recent IFS report um, um, earlier at the end of the summer, and one of the things that they pointed out was the biggest um, sectors to be hit was the tourism and hospitality sector. So clearly uh, regions such as Cornwall and London were particularly badly hit. But of course, they also uh, argued that some of these post-industrial uh, regions in, in, in the North, uh, specifically Liverpool and the North, Northeast, experienced a double whammy. Um, so what's, uh, what's the, the long-term implications uh, about alleviating educational and health inequities? Uh, well, think about the, the, the long uh, school closures during the first national lockdown and the diversion of health resources from primary care to deal with COVID, clearly. Uh, we know that COVID has unduly affected certain demographics, the elderly, uh, BAME groups, but of course, poorer families as well. So I'm, I'm really um, interested to, to, to see uh, in, the, um, uh, in 2021 or the post-COVID period, uh, what, how government will deal with this post-austerity uh, issue and, and, and making sure of leveling up. And, and maybe, um, you know, it, 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 uh, with Brexit, that, that wouldn't naturally happen. I don't know, but anyway. Uh, the second thing I'd like to, to, to look at is, is, is foreign aid, uh, specifically uh, um, the, 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 in, in the recent news, as you know, uh, our Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, announced about a month ago that overseas aid will be cut from 0.7% to 0.5% of Britain's gross national income. 
based on last year's figures, that would that could amount to something like seven billion uh, pounds. So it's not a, a small amount, um, even though it seems like it's a 0.2 percentage points. Um, Rishi Sunak rightly said it's difficult to, to justify foreign aid in the middle of a national pandemic. And no doubt uh, those uh, who, uh, who are in need of leveling up would, uh, would, would approve, uh, of course. But I want to give you just, a, just a, uh, some, some uh, figures or recent studies. Uh, back in April this year, uh, the UN's food agency warned that famines uh, could be rife in 2021 uh, without billions in aid. And, you know, it's, it's billions in aid that they need. In August, uh, the UN's uh, Children's Agency reported an estimated 500 million children were unable to access learning due to coronavirus. Finally, in, in October, just a couple of months ago, the World Bank estimated that 150 million people are in risk of extreme poverty. And uh, recently, the uh, Overseas Development Institute, uh, the UK-based ODI, uh, said uh, in a study said there were multiple implications. Next year is going to be particularly important for debt relief. And since aid has been diverted more to, to debt relief, that would mean other aspects would be squeezed out. Now that's, that's on the one hand, you've got aid uh, as, a, as an important component for development uh, from economic grounds and so on and so forth, you know, uh, uh, closing the savings gap and so on and so forth. But there, 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 is a, there is another aspect of, the, of, of aid. There's the strategic importance. Uh, lots of developed or industrialized uh, economies uh, use aid as a way of nurturing uh, partnership and strategic importance, uh, long-term trading partners and so on. So really in a post-Brexit era, uh, this brave new world, uh, that, that we are going into, uh, this cut in foreign aid, what, what, it, what would their impact be on uh, Britain's global standing and strategic interest? So there'll be two things, if you like, uh, I'd be looking out for in 2021. Uh, one more immediate, looking at the impact on developing countries, especially extreme poverty uh, as a result of the pandemic and what the response of developed economies such as the UK would be. In the longer term, how would this uh, be, be uh, the stance made, made by the Chancellor impact Britain's strategic interests? Thank you. I, I hope I'm well within the, the allocated five minutes. Slightly above, but it's fine. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> right. thank you for your, no, thank you. Um, yeah, as the, uh, it's now open to a, uh, Discussion. Yeah, well, well, I'd, I'd like to just say something. I think this issue of inequality within the UK, uh, I mean, clearly uh, people use the phrase K-shaped recovery. Uh, you know, people's experience of the whole uh, pandemic's been rather different. I mean, like, you know, we're academics, we've been working pretty much as normal. Okay, it's online, but we're working. Uh, other people are on furlough, they're not doing anything. They're just looking at Netflix all the time and getting paid 80%. 
other people are in complete destitution. They've lost all their money. They haven't, you know, they, they, they have to go to food banks. You know, it's a te- you know, there's some terrible stories uh, going around. And there was a, a National Institute uh, did a study of destitution in the UK and just shown how it's really risen quite quite dramatically. And of course, uh, Rishi Sunak's, um, you know, he, he's he's doing his best to support everybody, but you know, he's extended furlough, I think, for another month till April. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it can't be sustained at its current level. So I think we will see a lot of uh, um, problems will come home to roost in the UK, uh, and we'll see an increase in, 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 in poverty and inequality within the UK uh, next year, unfortunately. It's, it's rather sad to see. Uh, but I think we're also going to see this across the world, because as you say, the World Health Organization uh, uh, and other such or, uh, other people, the UN, have been really stressing this fact that in many countries, uh, you know, the, the, these problems are, go- are really going to be writ large, uh, and they are using terms like famine and food crisis, which, you know, maybe there's some exaggeration here, but, uh, you know, I think uh, these are respected organizations. And unfortunately, this may be something which is, 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 is going to uh, be, be a big thing for 2021. I don't be too pessimistic there, but uh, certainly that's what uh, some people well, think. Well, you're, you're keeping up the suit sayings tradition. Yes. <laughs> We're all doomed. Yes, I... Let me, let me say something about this. I mean, I think that the, the chancellor has said this cut in foreign aid is temporary. It just, it's just for this year. And I think that, you know, it's, I, I, I understand Hugh's um, points. The, the thing is that they're not due to the chancellor though, <laughs> you know, they are due to COVID. Um, and it's a horrible business. And the chancellor has put up 300 billion, which is, not, not a flea bite. And I think, um, you know, that um, the, the, the prospects are that 2021 will be a lot better. So I think we need to, we need to realize that he has actually done quite a bit. And, and I, I'm going to argue later on that he should continue to do quite a bit. So um, we're, we're lucky in a way that things have been, uh, the monetary policies I'm going to point out later has made such a mess of things that interest rates at zero. So that, you know, there's not much of a binding constraint on the public finances, which is just as well, given all the problems that you, you and Joshi are talking about and which, which are fully appreciated. I don't think Rishi Sunak can be faulted on putting his hand in our pocket, put it this oh. way. Sorry, I wasn't faulting Rishi Sunak at all. No, no, no. Well, we all agree that COVID has been a horrible business. I mean, uh, I think, Hugh, all you're doing really is saying that COVID has been horrible for, I, and we've, we've been quite lucky to be, to be able to well, carry on working, all of which uh, is really appreciated. I, I, I think the point that, that I'm making, and I believe the point that Hugh's trying to make as well, Patrick, uh, yes, uh, Rishi Sunak has done a lot. Uh, it, it's a tough, it's a tough out, world out there. Uh, it's, 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 it might get tougher in 2021. Maybe uh, you have a different perspective of that. But uh, in, in a way, uh, and, and this could be, this cut could be temporary, and we don't know how long that temporary is. Uh, but it, it's always a question of was it really necessary? I mean, uh, you know, maybe, you know, there were, there, there, there were bigger, bigger. Uh, pictures to be had, as it were. So you know, I, I'm I'm not I'm not entirely convinced of whether it was completely necessary. 
Well, maybe not. I mean, because it's, you know, what's, what's another 20 odd billion these days, really? And one of the things that we've seen is that you, 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 might, you might actually stop a famine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think I'm kind of on your side on this. It, it seems like peanuts in the context where peanuts could be pretty useful peanuts uh, in this context. So I, I, I think that that's- no, a, I, I mean, I, 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 I think a lot point. of people talk about peanuts, but peanuts are, are, are staple diets in some, some parts of the world. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's important. Yes, I think, I think that that's a fair point. But don't forget, an awful lot of aid is still going out and an awful lot of aid gets misallocated already, which is most people are pretty worried about aid being misallocated to all sorts of diversionary agents along the way. Um, but leaving that all on one side, clearly we are in a crisis period. But I think that, um, that, that uh, one thing that... The, that we've got to bear in mind is there's an incredibly big benefit system. You know, tax, tax credits are very important in the current situation and they go up to 50% of income. So that, you know, the marginal, the marginal tax credit rate is very high, it's 70%. And so a lot of people are getting tax credits. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that part of the existing system is a massive tax credit benefit system so that uh, we, we do in principle have a benefit system that keeps people out of starvation. I mean, it, you know, I'm sure that Hugh and anybody on the left thinks it should be 100%, but uh, <laughs> there are limits, there are limits on the possibilities of these benefit systems, which, uh, and so I don't think it's quite right to say that uh, there's nothing being done for, for, the, for the least well-off. There's this, the whole benefit system is cranking into gear, not to speak of the furlough system and the part-time uh, part job relief system, which was going to come in, only it's been stopped now because furlough is going on till April. And don't forget, furlough gives 80% of income. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty big package that's been put into place, and most of it has gone to people and not to companies. I'm just putting in the odd word here on behalf of Her Majesty. <laughs> can, I, uh, can I add something to Josh's point? Is it okay to interrupt you, Patrick, now? Sure. Sorry. Go ahead. So I, I, I just thought that it was really um, a good point that you made about the importance of foreign aid. And what it brought to mind was the, the, there's this paper uh, that actually has shown that the probability of war is proportional to increase in food prices. So th that potentially sort of yeah, cutting I, I this mean, aid can lead to unrest. Well, well uh, uh, Lina, uh, I mean, a, a lot of people have attributed the, the cutting back uh, uh, of aid in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s to what happened with terrorism and, and things like that. And so, yeah, that's not an, an unusual, uh, I mean, that's, there are some uh, causalities and there have been studies like that, I, I agree. I mean, I mean Patrick, I, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, you're, you know, from a, from a Brexit point of view, I mean, what about Britain's strategic interests, long-term interests? I mean, because, you know, AIDS, one of those things that people, you know, they, yeah, it goes to the wrong hands and you're helping, you know, China build, 
you know, their dairy industry, but, you know, their strategic interest in those things. I mean, so, you know, what, what, what do you think this, this might happen with in terms of uh, Britain's long-term strategic interest? Well, I think in the context of Brexit, our strategic interest is in building a world order, actually. That's, that's probably the most important thing. So um, foreign aid becomes more important. Well, I think, that, I think you've got a good point about foreign aid in the longer run. But as I said, they, they, they haven't resiled from, from their 0.7% target. They've simply said that in this COVID period, you know, it, it's going to be cut back by 0.2%, which is really, I mean, why, why they bothered beats me utterly since it's absolutely pointless sum, uh, you know, in, in the context of 300 billion plus that they're having to shell out for furlough and um, bill, sea bills and all the rest of it. So I kind of on your side on this, and I do think longer term, we have to, we have to kind of help to create a world order and uh, talk to a lot of countries out there that uh, would, would want, would want, have an interest in that. And that is, I think foreign aid does have a role in all that. Absolutely. I'm going to have to cut it short there because we're going to be moving on to topic three which is the future of fiscal and monetary policy, as well as trade and regulation, and will be introduced by Patrick. All right, so now it's my talk, <laughs> turn to talk again, so, and drive, drive Joshy and Hugh mad. Uh, so <laughs> maybe also Lena, I don't know. Um, but um, what I wanted to talk about really was first of all, that as I've said already, I think that Brexit will be a, a good policy in terms of getting rid of a lot of trade barriers that have been erected by the EU uh, on our trade with other countries and uh, also get rid of a lot of regulative interventions by the EU in, in labor markets, um, on, on areas like finance and even on product standards where I think we can do a better job. Um, but turning really to the sort of post-Brexit and post-COVID environment, I think that there's, a, there's an opportunity here to do a lot more things than simply, simply that. I, I, I think this is an opportunity to, to get to grips with our incredibly inefficient tax system, do a lot of tax reform, cut a lot of marginal tax rates. And in the process, I think the leveling up agenda in the North, which I think is important, is about uh, increasing, increasing production incentives in the North and incentives to be competitive in the North, which is all related to these marginal tax rates. So, um, so the next question is, can, can the Chancellor, we've talked a lot about the Chancellor just already, uh, poor fellow, um, can he afford all this? Well, one of the interesting things about COVID is it's blown away all the OBR and Oz, George Osborne rhetoric about austerity being necessary to stop, you know, debt going up by 20 billion, because we've increased debt by 400 odd billion, I think probably, it's now gone up to well over 100%, well, not well over 100%, it's, it's now probably gone up to about 100% of GDP. And um, the, the, the fact is that the costs now of borrowing 
is actually negative in real terms. The real interest rate is less than the growth rate, which if you look at the kind of solvency equation, it means that actually we are infinitely solvent. <laughs> and, you know, the great irony of the present situation is that people are actually um, pleading with the government to allow them to lend to it with, it, with real interest rates, as I say, coming down to nugatory levels, in, indeed negative, and less, certainly less on the growth rate. So, so the situation on fiscal policy is one that due to the, the, the kind of mismanagement of monetary policy, I'll come to in a minute, um, uh, is, 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 is eminently manageable. And that's the background in which we can actually embark on quite a lot of important supply side changes at very little, with very little problems on the fiscal side. And fiscal policy also needs to be pretty positive on the demand side. It's not just the supply side. It needs to be positive on the demand side as we come out of this COVID period and, and make sure that the recovery is, is really solid. Um, what about money? That's my last point, really. The first thing to realize about monetary policy has been massively mismanaged over the last um, 20 odd years. First of all, there was a huge credit boom which led up to the financial crisis. And people don't really, they all blame the banks, but they don't blame the central banks who actually mounted this huge credit boom as a result of their lax approach to money in their inflation targeting period. And then of course, the central banks let let Lehman go bust, which was a terrible mistake. And, and then they followed that by introducing draconian regulation on the banks, which stopped the banks lending in the, in the, in, in the hope for recovery period. So they, they really screwed up on every front. And then they compounded it all by introducing a massive quantitative easing, which drove interest rates to, 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 to negative levels in, in, many, in many parts of the world. I mean, Germany's interest rates at the moment are actually, are actually negative, as are Switzerland. So these are, these are incredible mistakes of monetary policy. They have a silver lining in the, in, in the form of fiscal affordability, which gives us this opportunity to kind of rebuild um, after the, the chaos that's been unleashed by all this monetary policy. Um, the last point I would make is that as fiscal policy does this rebuilding, we need to see interest rates go up because uh, with all this money that, that the central banks have created and regulation now being eased because of COVID and banks lending again pretty freely, there's a big growth in money supply going on around the world, which is potentially very threatening on the inflation front. Of course, at the moment, we want to see inflation rise, but we don't want it, we want, don't want it to go out of control in a in, in, to, towards the sort of 10 and 20% uh, rates, which I think is a big risk at the moment. And I think what we need to see as the recovery proceeds is money tightening a bit once inflation comes back to, to reasonable levels and interest rates being driven up by a combination of, um, of more expansionary fiscal policy in line with the sort of rebuilding I've talked about and some tightening of monetary policy. So we get interest rates coming back to some normal level and money supply kept under control so that we avoid a sort of big inflationary upsurge. So I guess that's what I got to say, Rehan. Thank you, Patrick. Um, the panel is again open.
Patrick, gosh, I was partly gobsmacked by what you said. I mean, I guess you're saying we're all Keynesians now. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we were. Everyone was Keynesians in the Great Depression. And as, <laughs> as Hayek pointed out to Keynes, it isn't a general theory, Maynard, it's a special theory of depression. And that's where we are today. So yes, of course. Of course, we're all Keynesians in the Depression. Or as Lucas said, we're all Keynesians in the foxhole. <laughs> yeah, no, no, well, I, I agree. So uh, I, I think I'd, I'd actually agree with quite a lot of what you, you've said. Well, I, uh, maybe, maybe not so you. I was kind of trying to take you unawares. <laughs> get, get, get past you for once. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. But uh, certainly, I think monetary policy. You're quite, you're quite right. I, mean, I think that, that there are quite a lot of potential dangers there with monetary policy, and in a sense, uh, the, the lack of focus on on the money supply. Uh, people, it's lulled people into a false sense of security. And in my lectures, I don't give them anymore. But when I was doing it, I'd always finish the lecture on QE with a little bomb with a QE tie, <laughs> QE <laughs> written on it, saying that uh, you know banks start lending again. Uh, yeah. The money supply can can rarely uh, let rip. Uh, it hasn't up till now. Well, it is now at the moment, but uh, for, for, uh, it, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. And for most yeah. of the period. Up until 2019, uh, it, it hadn't done. Uh, so I think that's that's a very bad thing. But I do think there is something which which might uh, uh, cause a problem, and and this is uh, some people call it japonification. Uh, you know, the fact that it may not apply to the UK, but it certainly might apply to some other countries. You know, when your debt gets large, uh, you know, and interest rates start rising. Um, you know, the cost of servicing the debt goes up and, and um, you know, it can lead to quite a lot of problems. And there might be a lot of political pressure on the, on the central banks in, in, in countries not to try and, you know, to keep interest rates artificially low, which, which they're doing now. Um, and, you know, we might be trapped in this low interest rate environment. Um, and as you, as you say, it, can, it could spin out of control. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the things I've been saying is that the government should be extending the maturity of its debt, and it has been extending it quite a lot. It's now, I think, reached 20 years, which is, uh, it used to be 16, and it's now up to 20. And I mm. think it should push it to, to consoles, you know, it should be perpetuities. And then, and then they haven't got to worry if <laughs> rates go up. And then they, would, they proof themselves against this return to sanity, you see. This is what I would like to see them be, do, be doing. But of course, being kind of stick in the muds, they are, they're only doing it rather slowly. Whereas I think there's bigger opportunity here to push out a lot of her perpetuities and lock in these very low rates so that indeed they wouldn't oppose the rise in rates because they won't have to roll anything over, you see, if they lock it all in. So that's that's what they should be doing. I'm, obviously, they don't always do what I say. In fact, they very rarely do uh, anything well, I say. But, yeah, <laughs> well, uh, Patrick, uh, sorry, you, uh, okay. Patrick, I, I think they need to start inflating away a lot of the, a lot of the debt or some of the debt anyway. Uh, so, you know, some sort of uh, inflation uh, need, needs to happen. So. Well, I think you'll get your wish on that, uh, Joshi. I mean, as, as Hugh and I don't often agree, so let's make the most of it at this point and, uh, and, and agree that there is quite a, a big risk that inflation could rise a lot more than people are expecting, owing to the fact that banks are now lending and there's all this QE sloshing around. And banks have got all the raw material they need to do a lot of lending. And of course, it's already growing 
you know, the rate of growth of the money supply in the United States is already 30% year on year. And here it's about 15, it's, it's moving towards 15. So, you know, it's quite a, I think there's gonna be inflation. I don't think we're gonna argue about that, Joshi. And I think people will say, yes, we don't mind a bit, but they'll start minding if it hits 20 or 30%. And then they'll have to, then they'll have to react. And so we should all be preparing for that now in terms of the government lengthening the, the debt uh, maturity and the banks starting to pull some of this QE out of circulation. But of course, nobody's doing that because they're just obsessed with, with the, you know, the, the present situation. We have a question from the chat um, from Moon Wong. Future inflation is a necessary pain? Question mark. Well, Woon, you're going to get your inflation. I think we're all agreed about that. The question is, how much do you want? <laughs> how much do you want? I mean, we certainly need some because, because of Japanification. We really don't want to get into the Japan situation where, where they actually cannot raise inflation in spite of humongous efforts to do so. So I think, I think you're going to get your wish, Woon, that everybody at the moment just longs for a bit of inflation. I mean... It's the objective of all the main central banks of the world to get some inflation. So you'll get it all right. And I think unless, unless our ideas in macro are completely balmy, it's a dead cert you'll get some inflation. Because there'll be recovery. And as Hugh says, there'll be reluctance to go back on the current policies for quite a long time until they see the whites of the inflation eyes. So you'll get inflation wound, I think, for sure, because they'll go on printing money, I think, for a good long time, for the sorts of reasons that uh, Hugh and Joshi have said. And, you know, and then, of course, they'll start to worry if it's got to be too much of a good thing. Mm. And hopefully they'll start to worry. So interest rates will go up and that'll solve your problems with our pension scheme, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because interest rates will be will be positive again and higher than the growth rate in real terms, we hope. It's, it's, it's curious. Ever since the QE started um, uh, more than 10 years ago, people have been predicting inflation. Yes. Um, but there are sort of forces that keep the inflation low. Uh, and, 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 and I just wonder whether, you know, because of the, the way the, the, the technology, the manufacturing has evolved, the way that we, we the supply chain and all this thing, uh, that the inflation in the future, if it happened, will it be not as bad as 20%, as you say, maybe something like four or 5% at most? Yeah, but don't forget, Wuhan, that the reason, the reason we didn't have inflation was we didn't have any growth in the money supply. If you look at the figures for the money supply, they hardly took off. Why? Because although they printed all the QE, at the same time, they brought in huge regulations, stopping the banks from lending. And so actual bank money, inclusive of other money, just didn't grow, you know, hardly grew at all. And so there was no real money supply threat to in, of inflation because what the central banks did with one hand, which was create massive QE, they took away with the other through regulating the banks so tightly. What about the US? The money supply in the US also uh, uh, very low in growth? No, it's growing now, you see. Now, now because banks are, are being encouraged to lend again, 
you're getting a lot of bank lending and the, the money supply growth rate in the US is now 30%. So it's- yes, I think and I, I, uh, I'd agree with the facts. I mean, basically, since the 2008 crisis, monetary growth has rarely been quite flat. It's, you know, it's been, you know, a few percent. Um, and it's only re in the last recent period that it started shooting up. And as you say, it's, it's quite, quite dramatic. If it's sustained, uh, it, it will yes. be but, you know, uh, we, uh, we may differ exactly whether the central bank regulations have played such a role, but we, we certainly agree on the facts, I think, uh, yeah. uh, Patrick. Yes, so... so yeah. Yeah, so so I, th I think I think the reason people get so 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 excited about QE, it sounds like it's it's a huge thing, you know, four hundred billion pounds or something. But got, you've got to look at that relative to the total overall money supply. You know, M four M four. You know, it, it's almost it's 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 bigger than GDP. It's it's a very big figure. So even even though you get these big jumps in uh, QE, uh, the, if, if the, you hardly notice it until this year, you hardly notice it in the time series for M four. I mean, you know, no, you don't notice it. Absolutely, you don't notice it in the time series of M4. You see it in the time series from the monetary base. Oh yes, of course. But which, the, which, the... which has risen by 100, 200, 300 yes. percent. But the yeah, point is, sure. it's had no effect on banks because of because the banks, either because they were flat on their backs anyway, or because mm -hmm. they were being stopped by regulation, just didn't lend it. And that, there we uh, agree yeah. that. Whatever the cause, they didn't lend it, and so the money supply, yes. as you say, has been very flat. And, and you know, part of the reason for that is is, is QE stop, stops them wanting to lend because it flattens the yield curve. So you know, in in, in the normal times, you know, you, you get your deposits and you, you lend something at ten or twenty years, um, and you can you, you get a big interest rate differential. But you know, if you if if few QE they flatten the yield curve. Uh, you know, they, you know, banks find it hard to make money. I think in, in that sort of environment, and a lot of banks have been in trouble uh, in recent years. You know, um, and uh, all that all that is true. However, bank however, shares are, have gone right down. They've gone right down in, in recent years. It's certainly true that if you flatten the yield curve, you get you get less incentive to lend. Obviously, but the point is they make money out of the differential between their deposit rate and their lending rate. And the other point is that they have plenty of scope to lend to SMEs, um, which is their main job actually. But that's the job that this, these dratted regulations have prevented them from doing because the regulations say you've, if you lend to anybody risky, which is their main job, you've got to have enormous increases in capital. And of course they, Nobody wants to invest in banks, and so it's enormously expensive to raise capital. And so I think at the end, it's that they've not m done their main lending job to small and medium-sized enterprises, which are what, what are banks in business for? And that's, um, and that's even, been, even though they could make money out of it, they've not been allowed to make money out of it because of these regulations on capital, capital requirements. Thank you. Um, We'll be moving on to topic four now, final topic, the prospects for inflation in 2021 and beyond, and that will be introduced by Hugh. Okay, well, we've already uh, looked at this, so uh, apparently it's a dead cert. We've, we're going to have uh, high inflation next year. Um, but I, I'll start from a slightly different uh, point of view. If, if you look at the forecasts that people make, uh, you know, by NISA and uh, OBR, uh, typically what they say, the, the expected rate of inflation for uh, 2021 and, and beyond, in fact, is 2%, uh, which is pretty much what the average inflation has been uh, for the last uh, 25 years, more or less. 
Um, but there is a big difference in the forecasts, and this is really noticeable. Uh, if you look at forecasts when they're published, um, they have things called fan charts. These are little bit things that fan out. So I haven't got the, uh, uh, I can't share my screen, but, uh, but you know what I mean. So they show the central forecast, which as I say for 2021 is, is 2% and beyond, but they, they then have it fanning out. And what's happened to the fan charts is they've really fanned out a lot more. So for example, if you look at the fan chart for February 2019 before the crisis, uh, for, for NISA or OBR, they, they'd have shown, yeah, inflation fans out, but at least within a year's time, there's about an 80% probability you, inflation would be within the target range, one to 3%. And, you know, it, it would gradually get fanned out a little bit more. If you look at the fan charts for, for NISA um, just in, in November, it's huge uncertainty now. Um, uh, so, uh, in, in, so there's a 10% probability of inflation being above 4%. Uh, in 2021. There's a 10% probability of it being below zero and uh, everything else in between. And the probability of inflation being within its target range of one to three percent is only is only 40%. So this is this this is really something I think because you know there's there's more uncertainty about inflation than there there, there has uh, ever been uh, for quite a long time. Not ever. Uh, Patrick's been around a long time and uh, indeed so have I. So we, we, we can remember 20% inflation. Um, but um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, certainly more than that there's been around, uh, certainly since the last uh, great financial crisis. And I think what the way to look at this is, is it's a balance of supply and demand factors. Um, so you know, on the supply side, you've got the shocks, the supply shocks, that you've got pandemic and, and possibly uh, Brexit, uh, which imply less output, at least in the short run. And, and higher costs, uh, for example, restaurants and, uh, re restaurants and hospitality. And these will tend to lead to higher prices uh, and uh, more inflation. On the demand side, on the other hand, uh, you know, you, you're going to tend to get less inflation. You know, you've got high unemployment, there's bankruptcies, there's going to be the end or tapering of the Sunak support regime, which will, is due in 2021. Maybe it'll get extended even more, the temporary becomes permanent. Remember, QE was temporary when it first came in, and now it's now it's a permanent feature. Maybe uh, some some form of the uh, furlough scheme will, will be extended, but certainly uh, the demand side will uh, that that will tend to uh, uh, tends to reduce the, the effect on inflation. So you've got a balance really between supply and demand. Uh, which one is going to dominate? Which one is going to dominate in 2021? And I think here views have altered. Uh, so, for example, David Smith, that Cardiff alumni, I think David Smith, who writes for the Times, he was a Cardiff graduate. Um, you know, he he certainly had the view in the middle of the year. He wrote that you know we're not going to get inflation as a result of of the COVID crisis in twenty twenty. In uh, sorry, in in this year, it'll be next year, twenty twenty one. And certainly, you know, uh, that 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 is certainly a view uh, I think that quite a lot of people have had. No, that was my view, in fact, as well. And, and I, I think I, I take entirely the idea that, you know, we, we, we might well get more inflation. But I also think uh, that, 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 that currently the demand side has is, 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 is got to be taken into account. And there's more to demand than just the money supply, although it's important. And that, um, you know, what's going to happen in labour markets is really going to be quite crucial. You know, we, we've got uh, eight to nine million people are on furlough at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of people going out of work um, and uh, you know how many of those people on furlough will have jobs to go back to 
you know, um, I, it, it, uh, it may not be very many. Will people be willing to take wage cuts to prevent redundancies? That's exactly what happened with many companies in, in the great financial crisis. And um, will people just move to lower paid jobs uh, out of necessity? So there's quite a few things can happen in the labor market, which could make this, uh, you know, great uh, lead to reduced demand in 2021. So uh, wages going down, if, if, if wages uh, don't uh, go up or they go down, then that can uh, greatly reduce the, the inflationary pressure which we face. So it is a balance of supply and demand, but certainly at the moment, certainly, uh, I think uh, I, I'm sort of worrying a bit more about the, 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 uh, the prospects on the demand side for 2021. But I do recognize there's also uh, the problem. So it is a, just really a matter for great uncertainty. So I don't think it's a done deal that we'll, we're going to get uh, a lot of inflation next year. Um, in the longer run, maybe there, there's more of an argument for that, but um, I, I don't think there is for 2021. So I'm interested to know what, what other people uh, think about this. Um, the, the, the story is, is quite interesting, what government policy does here, because in America, the government policy has been very different. Uh, they haven't had the same furlough scheme. There's been a lot less consensus on helping people out, but their inflation experience has been almost very similar uh, to our experience uh, in terms of, of, of a fall uh, in inflation. So, um, you know, I do take the thing, uh, the money supply has started to increase rapidly, but uh, going back to uh, when people used to talk about the money supply, Milton Friedman, I think it has long and unpredictable lags, long and unpredictable lags, doesn't it? So even though the money supply is rising now, um, it might not uh, really affect things uh, for quite a while. Uh, I think uh, two years was the phrase that I think that people used to talk about, the long and unpredictable lags when I used to give these lectures. Um, so that, that might not uh, be a big feature, a big pressure for 2021. So yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that's my, my current worry. Um, does inflation matter too much? Does it really matter whether we have 4%? You know, it will help out, uh, it will help out government finances greatly particularly if interest rates are kept low. Uh, some people might call that financial repression, but certainly Neil Ferguson, the, the economic historian, has often argued that if governments get themselves into big debt uh, situations like this, where debt to GDP is very high, uh, inflation is, is almost uh, one of the main ways, uh, default and deflation and inflation are the two ways they can uh, get out of it. And so that, that, that too, inflating it away might be something. But of course, um, it does have huge uh, societal impacts. We were talking a little bit about the K-shaped uh, recovery earlier. You know, when you have low, uh, negative real interest rates, inflation is higher than, than the rate of interest. There are huge redistributions of wealth that, 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 that uh, go on. And uh, Woon Wong's pension scheme will, will, be, will be affected by this as well, particularly if inflation is over 5%. Uh, um, so, you know, uh, it, and it can give rise to social, social unrest. Uh, um, so, um, so uh, there are there are lots of issues. So, I think I've done my five minutes, have I? Yep. <laughs> oh, thank right. you. Um, sure, sure. Okay. Right. Um, so, yeah, as before, the uh, discussion is open now. Yeah, uh, so, sorry, Riyad, I just 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 a couple of points. I, I I think it's really interesting what Hugh says about you know the uncertainty around uh, inflation forecasts, and I, I hadn't actually seen this particular uh, uh, chart. But I mean, if you look at some sectors of the economy, for instance, house prices, I mean, house prices apparently has been going up 
and the demand for houses has been going up as well. Uh, so that's that's one thing. So it you know and and they're huge consumables. They're not sort of you know small things that people get into it uh, in, in in a recession anyway. So that's that's a curious one. But you know there there might be there, there's talk of pent up demand. For example, they they call it pent up demand. Um, the fallout from credit crunch and all that. But uh, Hugh, just, it, it, just to ask you, I mean, I, I hadn't seen this particular, uh, and, and more of a technical point. I mean, do they distinguish between trend inflation and, and inflation gap when they forecast? Because uh, trend inflation is much easier, much more easier to forecast, but, but inflation gap is notoriously difficult. Uh, and that might be causing some of the, uh, the uncertainty, but yeah. Uh, a quick answer is 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 no. I'm not quite sure exactly how they how they how they make their their forecasts and their, and their fan charts, um, but yeah, I mean, I, the, 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 uh, I think most people agree that expectations are very well anchored, and you know uh, certainly the 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 the, um, the expectation of two percent inflation is still with us. I think it, it, it may go away if, if inflation goes up, but uh, it's still here. Um, it's just that uh, I think now people. Are looking at the various factors, you can depending which factor you look at, it gives a different answer. And, and uh, you know, some people are still worried about deflation, which uh, you know might seem unlikely, but you know, inflation is very low at the moment. Um, whereas other people, uh, you know, in other areas, you're looking at looking at inflation. And of course, inflation is a mix of everything. You, you you've got the whole economy. So, in normal times, some things are going up more rapidly than others, and the actual headline inflation rate you see is just an average across all these things. Although it excludes uh, house prices, uh, but um, yeah, uh, uh, the house price thing I think is an interesting phenomenon. Although I think a lot of people also think that that might be relatively short-lived, uh, because of course people are on mortgage holidays, uh, they're on furlough. There's a lot of things going on that we that we, we forget about. Um, but you know, when these mortgage holidays end, uh, people are still going to have to pay the mortgages back, and uh, you know they they may find themselves in a rather difficult financial situation. I think. Lots of great things Rishi Sunak's done, and I am a fan of him, uh, despite what Patrick seems to think I'm, I'll be criticising him. Uh, but, you know, a lot of what he's doing is, is just kicking the can down the road, really. Um, and um, it's interesting to look at America, where, of course, these things were much more short-lived. And, of course, there you've got people being thrown out of their rental accommodation. You've got people uh, losing their houses and, and, and so on. And you, you see the big food queues in America. So, in a sense... I think what we're seeing in America at the moment might be a little bit of a harbinger to what we're going to see uh, in 2021. I hope not, but uh, we'll wait and see. Well, I think in a way we're kind of we're in a point where we're testing macro theory as much as anything else. It's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting because what Hugh has stressed is what I would call New Keynesian real theory of inflation. You know, you look at demand and you look at supply, and you you ask, you know, which is which is bigger than the other. And, and then it all comes out, you know, through a sort of excess demand mechanism. But um, with these huge rates of growth of money going on, which we've just been talking about, a lot depends really on how, on, on how those policies turn out. I mean, it, they've have had a big effect on prices, but they've had a big effect on asset prices. And that I think is, Part of the reason house prices are doing well, they're an important asset. And of course, the stock market has been massively revived by these huge QE um, uh, efforts by, by central banks in the, in the past year. 
And so I think QE has, uh, and the money supply growth that we're seeing has had a big effect already, but on asset prices. And then the question is, if it's kept up, I mean, I don't think anyone's saying that if they suddenly stop it in the new year or pull some of this back, you won't get back to the sort of National Institute type forecast that Hughes talked about. But, you know, if they don't, that's the question, really. I mean, if they, if they go on, which I think both of you kind of suggested they might for various reasons, you know, they, they don't want to push up interest rates and the government's got a lot of money to borrow and, 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 and they're sort of, they're wanting to support the recovery, which is very much the rhetoric coming out of the bank at the moment. If they go on doing it well into 2021, after we've had a vaccine and people are kind of back to a bit more normality, then I think we're in an interesting experiment really. And maybe it's the sort of experiment we shouldn't be doing, I think would be my point. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. I believe uh, Lena wanted to say something. Yeah, I, I just had a kind of a question. So, uh, Hugh, you were t talking about this demand side drivers of inflation. And I was wondering if there's something you could say about um, inflation and inequality. Because, you know, you can imagine that some people actually, be, in a sense, becoming better off as a result of COVID, um, while other people actually, you know, losing their um, livelihood. But probably people who are gaining, even a, in a small way, um, are accounting for a bigger share of spending. Yeah, well, yes, it, it, it's the K-shaped recovery again. It's, you know, Jeff Bezos is doing very well out of the, uh, the COVID crisis. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so uh, I mean, uh, it, is, it, is, it is the people in, in, in who can... The middle classes who can work from home, um, uh, that they're doing well. Um, so I think there is a lot of inequality. Now, the net effect of that on demand is, is a little bit more difficult to say, because, of course, yeah, if, 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 you, know, if, you, if you give some more money to Jeff Bezos, uh, there's not much he can do with it, really. He's already spending as much as he wants, even though he's... Uh, so, um, yeah, so where, whereas poorer people tend to spend most of the money they get. So you get, you get an immediate, so if, 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 if someone in low income gets even less income, <laughs> that, that immediately affects their, their, their expenditure. Whereas if you've got uh, uh, somebody who, who just hasn't, has been accumulating money, okay, they haven't been able to jet off their usual holidays in, in the Maldives or wherever they go. <laughs> uh, yeah, they've got more money, certainly. They've got more money in the bank, but we've seen this huge rise in the savings rate. Now, some of that, of course, is forced saving. Uh, they'd like to spend more, but you know, uh, you know, short of, of just blowing it on something. I mean, they're, 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 there's limits to how fast and rapidly people can, can spend money. So I think it, it, it is a little bit of an experiment. Uh, we'll wait and see. There is this pent-up demand. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, against that, there's also habits. I think there's, a, there's a, a, a lot of evidence to say that consumption is, to some extent, driven by habit. And, for example, will we go to restaurants as much? You know, we've all been cooking at home. Our cooking skills have improved. Will we want to go out to restaurants as much uh, in, 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 in a year's time when they're open? Well, there won't be as many restaurants open in the first place. There'll be a lot fewer restaurants selling a much more narrow range of, of things. So there'll be fewer restaurants to go to, but will we really want to go to them? Uh, so we'll wait and see. So we, we may get used to altering our consumption patterns and, and, and uh, looking at Netflix or whatever it is uh, and the way we've been entertaining ourselves uh, up till now or preparing videos for lectures or whatever it's doing. 
Thank you. Um, oh. Sorry, we'll have to move on to the Q&A session to give the uh, audience some time to ask questions to the panelists. Um, so the first one being uh, on regional inequality. How do we go about protecting the most deprived areas of the country like Cornwall and parts of Wales from extreme poverty as we'll no longer be getting funding from the EU? Most, important, most importantly, how do we go about protecting the Cornish pasty now it loses uh, sorry, now it loses its geographical protection. Uh, this hasn't been addressed to any specific panelists, so if anyone would like to jump in, please feel free. Yeah, well, uh, gosh, uh, I, I hope the government would uh, replace uh, some of the uh, uh, some of some of the funding that's that, and and I thought that was part of the promise of of this brave new world of Brexit, that you know everything anything that that. Uh, that, that the EU uh, funding it will be replaced by by the government and, and of course it will be much more efficient where it uh, when, when when they invest it so some may say uh, the, regarding the geographical importance well uh, Cornish pasties will always be Cornish pasties I guess <laughs> I, I, I think Cornish pasties are not really protected by any as far as I'm aware by any name of origin. I think they're just Cornish pasties and you go buy them in Cornwall and you can buy them everywhere else too, made by other people than Cornish people. So I don't think there's much difference there, but um, yes, I mean, as Joshi says, the, 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 the whole EU agricultural subsidy system is, is due to be replaced pound for pound by Her Majesty. So, you know, and it will be on a, it, will, it won't be on the basis that you, you don't farm things. It won't be any kind of set aside. It'll be on the basis of what you do in a positive way for the environment and so forth, which I think is quite a sensible reform. I mean, the EU condemns vast tracts of Britain to be not used for anything much, except um, just sitting there gathering subsidies from the EU, which is not very, very, very good policy. Thank you. Um, the next question is on macroeconomics in general. What are the panelists' views on the Great Reset that has been put forward by World Economic Forum? Is stakeholder capitalism better than shareholder capitalism? Mm -hmm. uh, well, who wants to start on that? Basically, I mean, this is, in my view, pretty good nonsense because the difficulty about firms is that what they're asking firms to do is to decide on the public good. And one thing that firms don't know about is the public good. What they do know about is producing efficiently what they, what they produce. And that was the whole basis for the, 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 the law surrounding firms and the, the incentives, of course, that shareholders give firms that manage their affairs. Um, and the difficulty I have with stakeholder capitalism is, is that they're in effect asking firms to be like a form of government. And I mean, if there are public goods, I'd really rather our, our government decided what they were and told firms to produce them. You know, that's an, that would be an efficient way of deciding um, on the public good agenda. But to have a, a sort of blanket situation where firms are told to adjudicate on the public good, in, you know, when their managements know nothing about this and will probably get it wrong, apart from the fact that 
they don't really have a strong interest in, in doing it. There are huge conflicts of interest at the firm level. So I think this, I think this agenda that you've talked about is thoroughly misguided. Yeah, my, 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 the, the Great Reset. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a lot of people have been talking about this and we, we can all see the videos of Mr. Mr. Schwab and so on. Um, I, I'm not quite sure how this interacts with, with, with national governments, uh, basically. Uh, I, I can see um, that there are, there, there are uh, groups of people who, who are interested in, in, in changing the way that society works in a top-down uh, manner. Um, but that's not how things that, that's not normally how things work i don't think i mean you have elected governments in in, in you know america and britain and, and france or wherever and uh, they they pursue their own their own national policies so i i, I take the this this whole idea of a great reset like some new Bret, breton woods it's sometimes been been talked about is a breton woods, woods moment but i think in breton woods there, there was you know we just finished the war you know the, the world was in not the whole world but large parts of the world were literally in ruins uh, and you had a very clear hegemonic power, the United States, um, in terms of economic wealth, and, and, the, and the Soviets in terms of, of military wealth, uh, military capabilities. But that, that's not the case now. It's a much more uh, devolved world. It's a much more multipolar world at the moment. And and um, so you know, I think you know, uh, Xi Jinping in China is doing his own great reset policy, building building a huge new city outside Beijing. Uh, he's got his own Belt and Road Initiative. Other people have got other things. So. I, I can see the, this idea of, of, of the Great Reset, but I think it's symptomatic, really. At the moment, people are thinking, well, the crisis has happened and we're going to be in some brave new world after the crisis. People said the same thing in 2008. Oh, this will never happen again. We'll make everything different. But um, that, that, that's not how the world works. I, mean, I think, you know, politics in each country will, will determine roughly, roughly, roughly what happens rather than having a, a sort of Bretton Woods-style, top-down um, sort of policy um, uh, imposed from, from, from outside, my, my own personal view. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, just to add to that, I, I would agree that individual countries definitely will, will pursue their own uh, national interests. And, and uh, of course, you know, the, the US uh, had, had a particular policy for the last four years, and we will see something else uh, for, for the next four years. And that's a, a very good example of it. And, and of course, Britain, uh, the, the post-Brexit Britain will always uh, pursue, you know, its own interests in a global world. And as, as, as we've talked before, in, in, for, for whatever visions it has in, 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 in its power in, in, in the world. So rather than sort of uh, specifically looking at, you know, coming to consensus and all that. But I, I know that, um, I mean, he was right that, you know, after uh, the credit crunch, nothing much happened. There was a, a lots of talk in the immediate aftermath led by Gordon Brown to coordinate these things, but that really came to very little. Uh, the US took a certain route, uh, the EU took a particular route and, and the UK took its own route uh, in, in, uh, for the credit crunch, so, yeah. Thank you. Um... We have a, another question in the chat, which is, um, how do we go about paying back the money we've borrowed during the pandemic? Do we tax the rich and clamp down on avoiders or do we go for austerity round two? Oh goodness. This, this is almost like the 
OBR, isn't it? It's the kind of, um, it's the revisiting. I mean, one, uh, one of the things we've discovered um, is that governments have got much more scope to borrow to finance things than anybody assumed before. So, I mean, if you if you if you read the OBR's reports going before before COVID, they were kind of wittering on about ten billion here and you know four billion there and how we had to get back to to zero deficits, and then of course COVID came along and we 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 coolly spent four hundred billion in twelve months flat, and. What happened to interest rates on government bonds? They fell, <laughs> they fell. And they're now at an all time low. You can borrow, you can borrow for 20 years at 0.2%, I think the latest figure shows on UK gilts, which, which as I said earlier is less, it means that the real interest rate is negative and less, and less than the growth rate, which is a situation where the solvency constraint just does not bind. So all this talk about austerity, the, 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 the need for austerity or the need for tax increases on the rich. I mean, the last thing we want post-Brexit in the UK is increased tax rates on the rich when we want to create a, a, an environment of growth in which you know, investment resumes and the economy grows and takes advantages of the advantage of the, of the opportunities available around the world. And, the last thing we want is to sort of uh, to to raise marginal tax rates, which will cut that all off at, at source, really. And and equally, you know, we just don't want to raise tax rates full stop. We need to actually get our tax system reformed and get the marginal tax rates in it down, and then finance it by borrowing. And then, in due course, you know. Uh, yes, if they don't issue perpetuities, they will have to roll over the debt and then they will have to face real interest rates that are higher than the growth rate. And then they will have to kind of think about meeting solvency requirements. But at the moment, the solvency constraint actually just isn't binding. Thank you all for coming, everyone. It's been a pleasure chairing the, the year in 2021 event. That was Rayhan finishing up there. We hope you enjoyed this debate. We hope everyone has a very nice winter break and for those celebrating Christmas, a very Merry Christmas. We look forward to seeing you all in the new year.